All right, folks, we are back. It is Bill Real and uh, Gabe, and we're having a conversation continuing from the one we had a couple weeks ago. It is the 17th of June, 2023. We talked about a lot of things. Gabe, I'll just kind of turn the time over to you. Maybe remind us of some of the territory that we've covered, and then let's jump into part two where we'll just keep some of these... uh, uh, what I think are deeply interesting uh, ideas around science and the psychology and what's going on in our heads and what is reality. Uh, we'll just keep the conversation moving. Sure. Um, yeah, we talked uh, kind of about viewing reality as kind of this fractal nature where you're, there's this hermetic principle of like as above, so below, where you're applying these general principles to understand reality this idea of myths and constructs. And I think, you know, I was listening to you uh, and Jacob Hansen's talk on morality. And I think, I mean, that's a fundamental thing that you have to wrap your head around is that everything that we talk about, everything that is bounded by language um, is a myth. It's a construct and it's not, it's not false, but Alan Watts talked about a myth being an image in terms of which we try to make sense of the world. Right. Um, so just having that awareness that like we're pointing at the moon, you know, it's the finger pointing at the moon, not the moon. Um, science and spirituality, how those differ, how those overlap and reaching for truth, idealism and materialism, and then dreams and kind of dissociative identity disorder as this model for um, understanding reality against going back to that fractal nature of the universe. So we talked about Bernardo Castro, um, and I know we mentioned Don Hoffman, but I think that's a a really relevant perspective, especially because Don Hoffman and Bernardo Castro both pretty much, I mean, there's interviews with them both, and they're like, yeah, we, we're saying the same thing in slightly different um, approaches. Mm. Um, but I think I was, uh, I'm going to read this. I don't think we read it last time, but this summary, chat GPT summary of Donald Hoffman's theory. And there's a, um, a Ted talk, which is pretty accessible. It's like 20, 25 minutes, but then there's deeper two, two and a half, three hour interviews that I think are really, um, really insightful. Lex Friedman, Z dog MD are some of the ones that I think I've listened to. Um, but chat GPT says Donald Hoffman, a cognitive science, cognitive scientist. Um, I think he might be a psychologist. Um, and professor at the University of California, Irvine, has put forth a theory of reality called conscious realism. Hoffman's theory challenges conventional assumption that our perception accurately represents an objective reality. According to Hoffman, according to the model of natural selection, our perceptions would have been shaped by natural selection, which favors survival and reproduction rather than a faithful representation of reality. He proposes that evolution would have shaped our perceptual systems to present us with a simplified and intuitive version of reality that helps us navigate the world efficiently. Our, our perceptions are not a direct reflection of the external world, but rather a set of symbols or icons that convey useful information for survival. And he, he talks often about these things being icons on a desktop and not actually like the, the voltage gates and switches. This implies that our everyday experiences, including the objects we perceive, and the qualities we assign to them represent or are correlated with, but ultimately are not reality. He has used computer models of evolution involving fitness functions and compared agents that have that have to accurately perceive reality with ones that can instead heuristically modify their perception of reality 
the agents that accurately perceive reality are always outcompeted by those able to distort or evolve their perception of reality. Hoffman suggests that space, time, and physical objects are not fundamental aspects of reality, but rather a kind of user interface created by our cognitive systems. Instead, he proposes that reality consists of conscious agents and their interactions. These conscious agents are not necessarily human or even biological, but are any entities capable of having subjective experiences. His framework of conscious agents defined uh, are defined so that any combination of one conscious agent interacting with another conscious agent also meets the definition of a conscious agent. In Hoffman's framework, the true nature of reality lies in conscious experiences rather than physical objects. He argues that consciousness is fundamental and that the physical world, as we perceive it, emerges from a deeper realm of conscious agents and their interactions. Hoffman's theories, theory has significant implications for our understanding of the nature of reality, perception, and consciousness. It challenges traditional scientific paradigms and raises profound questions about the relationship between our subjective experiences and the objective reality, ultimately suggesting that our perception may be a highly crafted illusion designed for survival rather than an accurate depiction of the world. Yeah. And, and I want to, you know, for the audience, that's going to be like a lot of deep language, right? And uh, probably goes over their head a little bit. But let me try to say something about what I interpret that as and see what your thoughts are. Mm -hmm. So in this universe there, if we go back to whatever the beginning is, there is energy of some sort that is just bouncing around. And as we develop complexity of thought, as we, as that creative energy shows up, however it does, and creates complexity of thought, it seems that as, uh, as consciousness is attempting to survive, as is attempting to find food or nourishment, as it's attempting to thwart off danger, the more interesting that can be, the more we're going to pay attention, hence the better for survival. And if we're distracted by stimuli that is not conducive to survival, it is in our best interest to develop processes in our brain to block out such. So it seems inevitable that whatever is in front of us as reality, the parts that are important to survival, our brain has amped up and created uh, those outside stimuli to be observable to us in ways that are more interesting than they would, than they actually are. And in instances where something is not helpful to our survival, our eyes and other senses would have been, would have learned over hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, and maybe even billions of years to block out that stimuli. Hence, whatever is in front of us that we deem as reality is, uh, whatever it is, it's not what we see. And, uh, and, and to what significance it's not what we see, I think these scientists are suggesting that it is much bigger than you can imagine. How did I do? Pretty good. I think what's tricky is that like, even in your explanation and we try to understand this, like you're still talking about time, you're still talking about space, which ultimately he's saying are myths, they're constructs. Um, but yeah, and it, it's interesting because he, he 
he talks about evolution, but he also says like, look, evolution is, it's a myth. It's a, it's a construct. I'm not saying that it's a fundamental reality because again, it's space and no, time. You know, right. we're talking about base pairs, DNA and time, but he's saying, you know, that's, that's a good model that we have for understanding things within this space time. And he says, and that's pretty widely accepted. So I'm, I'm granting that, you know, saying, okay, let's, let's look within that frame, uh, framework. If those postulates of evolutionary game theory are true, then, you know, my computer models and just intuitive logic would show that we're not, you know, it wouldn't be beneficial from a fitness perspective to observe a, an objective reality because the evolution would favor those that filter out stuff that the parts of reality that just don't make sense for the survival of that organism. So he's, you know, he's using it within the, the framework or the myth or the construct of um, evolution and showing that basically breaking down, deconstructing that we, we the idea that we're um, observing objective reality and, you know, his relation to a desktop and an operating system and the fact that, yeah, when we're trashing, you know, deleting a file, we're dragging something to the trash. Um, we're not actually dragging something to a trash, but that's the interface that we've developed because it, it would be impossible to directly interact with all the, you know, the bits. Um, and so, excuse me. yeah, this, you know, I think it's really fundamental that he's talking about space and time being part of this illusion and part of our, you know, it, this model of the universe as kind of infinite intelligence or energy or whatever, infinity trying to understand itself um, only through these finite slices or perspectives, I think is, is helpful. And the way that we've evolved to do that, or the way that we're experiencing that is through space and time, but there's, and we'll get to it, you know, there's other ways that we can have conscious experiences that actually transcend space and time through these mystical experiences, whether it's endogenous or exogenous, you know, through plant medicine or through meditation or contemplative prayer or some fasting. Um, and so we, we, people have experienced this and this is what has shaped religion. Um, so I think it's helpful just in showing that whatever we thought we knew about evolution and space and time isn't in actually reality. true. And, and he's got, you know, the science to back it up too. He talks about the, these equations that uh, are predicting the scattering of subatomic particles when they're smashing stuff in the Large Hadron Collider. And he's saying, you know, if you, the, the scientists that are using space and time and believing that it's a fundamental aspect of reality, which I think Einstein, you know, posited, their equations to predict all the particles and where they are, are pages. I think he may have even said like hundreds of pages. Um, and it's, they're not completely accurate, but the, the physicists that are saying, okay, let's throw out space and time. Let's, let's operate on, they're using this, uh, object, quote, unquote object, the amplitudehedron that is multidimensional and they're able to predict these phenomenon more accurately with just like one or two terms. And so he's showing that, um, we've kind of reached the limits of space and time and sciences is, is supporting 
um, this deeper reality that it's hard for us in our conscious awareness to our normal conscious awareness to understand. Um, but ultimately it's predicting what we're seeing and experiencing better than our model of space and time. And that's ultimately what science and spirituality and religion are doing. You know, they're, they're never absolute truth. They're approximations that are continually refined. And when we um, transcend one like Newtonian physics, it's not that we throw it out, we use it in as much as it's useful within the framework that is useful, but we also understand the limits of where it breaks down. Yeah, and for folks who go, come on, things are what I see they are. First off, go listen to some of these scientists. Go listen to Donald Hoffman uh, and other scientists who are on the forefront of quantum mechanics. By the way, if you do a Google search for is time and space fundamental, you'll come up with uh, 20 or so reputable uh, journals and uh, scientific periodicals that are covering the same issue. This isn't some quack idea that the other scientists on the forefront of this of this uh, discipline are thinking is crazy. These are the folks at the forefront who are having this conversation are literally debating this stuff at this moment, whether this is real or not, and it has some weight to it. Um, but to point out that we know that this is going on we kind of intuitively understand that say lizards or snakes, they see the world different than we do. They, they can sense heat in animals. They look up at a tree and they can see that the bat there is hanging from the branch and he's warm and the rest of everything around them is cooler. Um, we recognize that whether it's something like a plant, like a mushroom, which is a fungi or a tree, um, that they perceive the world different than we do and they are life and they obviously have some sense because mushrooms in the mycelium underneath the forest ground are sending messages to the trees that if a fire happens on one side of the of the forest the trees closer to the mycelium are already making preparations to turn their leaves a certain way uh, because the fire is coming so we know there's communication happening we know there's perception and we know that other life doesn't perceive. We know dogs don't see the same way we do. Cats don't see the same way we do. There are things they're missing out on. And we go like, oh, they only see in certain amount of colors. Well, stop for a minute and recognize that maybe you only see in a certain amount of colors. Um, and so you've been trained. Again, I'm going to use time and space here. But you've been trained over the time of evolution as a consciousness, as in the form of a human in, in that species to discard and to highlight certain pieces of information. Um, and every creature on the planet that isn't human does it differently than we do. And so if you recognize that they can pick up things you can't, or they don't see things that you do, then recognize that you have blind spots as well. And uh, so where do you wanna go from there? I, I just want, I'm trying to take these concepts and make them a little more agreeable to kind of a layman audience. Mm -hmm. um, but I find this stuff deeply fascinating. And I think what's tricky about this is, yeah, it is, it's a higher dimension of, of thinking that we've maybe been exposed to in the past and like, oh, that's interesting. That makes the equations work, but we just can't grok it because we haven't experienced it. Um, but we're getting to the point with research in psychedelics and conscious experiences and the fusion of like Eastern philosophy and 
Western philosophy and um, religion that we there's a growing movement of people that are connecting these dots and showing that yeah, yeah, consciousness is, you know, is part of physics and we actually have to understand consciousness because everything we experience is through consciousness. And these aren't just theoretical ideas. Um, if we open up, if we deconstruct enough and are open to these ideas and, and the idea of idealism or that the universe is consciousness and that matter arises from consciousness rather than consciousness coming from just some configuration of matter. Um, th there's actually a lot of science that is better explained in some of these um, research on psi phenomena and telekinesis and thought stuff, which um, is so easy to, to dismiss and even spiritual stuff and uh, spiritual ex experiences, synchronicities, psychic, whatever, we inherently, the rational skeptical side of us want to dismiss it. But if you dive into why you're dismissing it, you're dismissing it based on a literal materialistic view of the world that like, of course, you know, that that could be possible to people communicating across distances because, you know, they're separate physically and time. And you realize, well, you actually have to be a little more cautious in dismissing stuff because those things you thought you knew maybe aren't as fundamental as um, you thought. I think I think another thing that is really helpful, well, I like Donald Hoffman because he he's very much a scientist, but he also has a meditative practice and connects, you know, he can talk for hours about this without bringing in any sort of spirituality, um, but he also is familiar with spiritual traditions. And he says like, look, science is starting to say a lot of the same things as certain spiritual traditions, these more esoteric or indigenous. Um, and his model of conscious agents, I think is really helpful because he, he, it helps explain consciousness, which is something that's interesting because we're, you know, debating whether AI is conscious when it's actually highlighting the fact that we don't have a consensus on what consciousness is. Um, I think there's some really good explanations for it. Um, and my view of it is consciousness, you know, it's not, intelligence it's not necessarily self-awareness um but it's just one perspective kind of one camera angle in this um cosmic dream or this movie of life and it's just one way to slice it and that's what he's saying too is that his reality is made up of, of just conscious agents and any one conscious agent and another conscious agent their interaction also meets the definition for another, another conscious agent um, so just like our cells, um, are individual, but they're part of this collective. So a cell is a conscious agent within like a materialist perspective, but also the body, the individual is a conscious agent. Similarly, you know, we, we view ourselves as separate from each other. Um, but when you really try to tease that apart, you realize that there's a lot of overlap um, between two people, you know, I, I think that I have full control of what I do and you have full control of what you do, but then when you realize how another person's mo, uh, mood and energy, whatever you want to call it, you know, their mood, if I'm talking, uh, psychological terms can affect you, you realize there's mirror neurons, you know, you, everything that you think you do consciously actually starts as a subconscious thought that at some point bubbles up a, above a threshold and then it becomes a conscious perception or, or thought. 
And on that subconscious level, we're picking up cues from our environment, from other people. So it's pretty easy from a bunch of different perspectives to break down this separateness. And even in reading in, in Sapiens, um, which I just recently finished, um, it's a very materialistic view, but he does talk about individuals. And then he also talks about species as essentially a conscious agent of like, well, you know, we didn't go through the agricultural revolution because it helped an individual, but it was helpful for kind of the entity of the species. And so I think this is the model where you can talk about God. And I don't really like the term God because it's so often used in this dualistic, you know, God versus Satan, anthropomorphic um, God person. Um, but this concept you said in one of your recent podcasts of like, oh, if you think of God as omnipotent, omnipresent, um, omniscient, uh, that just meets the definition for the entire cosmos. And so that's, that's what this model is, is that at any level you want to slice it, you can view a society, you can view a world, you can view everything as a conscious kind of subjective experience. Our, our experience of reality is just one slice um, of an individual, but in these mystical experiences, again, through all these a variety of um, modalities, that's where you actually can shift the camera angle and realize, oh, I, I, I thought I was this person that I was following in this like first, um, you know, third, third person view in a, like a computer game, but you're actually not the person, you're the camera that's viewing the person and you can zoom out, uh, you can zoom in um, and redefining uh, what it is, who you are, what's your identity, your ego. Yeah. When you explain time and space, or when you read Donald Hoffman explaining time and space, again, we touched on this in the last conversation. <clears throat> we talked about dreams and it, it, it seems as though one way to relate to it, and I'm not saying we're in a simulation, but one way to relate to it is that you are part of something going on inside a computer, for instance, where time and space isn't what you think it is, right? If you're the driver in Grand Theft Auto and you simply pick right back up when the person shuts off the game and turns it back on, real time, real space, whatever, you know, again, we're not even saying that time and space is real at all, but whatever it is, if you're, if you're the character in the video game, video game, you have no clue what it is. You only know what the game is telling you. And, uh, and in a sense, as you point out, uh, our eyes are the VR headset. We are the character in the game. You're the observer who's watching all this stuff, you know, happen in front of you. Um, it, I, I don't even know what to say to it. It's, it, it becomes at some point sort of so unimaginable that even if it's real, it's still crazy to think about. And that's why I think these, you know, this fractal, view of the universe using things that we can understand to understand things that we can't um, quite fathom is helpful. And, it, you know, one of my views of this time and space um, illusion is that essentially, you know, the, the universe, God, whatever you want to call it, is it's a, this cosmic infinite choose your own adventure book that everything's already there. Um, but as we read books, you know, the information all, all there, but we can only process it linearly. So you read through the book and you choose one path through it, and then you can read through it again and choose another path. And 
the only way to really understand it is through all these sequential linear um, journeys through it, although it's all there and, and you could, you know, some sort of savant could maybe cut out all the pages and lay it on a, on a table and then just look at it and understand everything at once. Or you could just read the book page by page and you get this very disjointed um, view. But this is, you know, this is where this idea of reincarnation or multiple lives. And again, I hold this very loosely and from an idealistic perspective of consciousness and sort of like a cosmic dream. Um, but that's what we're trying to describe here. And, and, and dreams as well, I think, again, are very helpful because it's something that we experience every day, every night. And when you have a dream, you know, if I were to ask you who you were, you'd be like, oh yeah, I was, you know, Bill in the dream. But then if I asked like, well, who are the other people? Where did they come from? And you'd say, well, they, they came from not the perspective that I was following in the dream, but they came from this higher, more um, meta Bill. And then the background as well. Well, that also came from a, you know, this higher, you know, simulation within a simulation sort of idea. And again, it, it's so bizarre. And this idea that, that physical matter is an illusion or arises from consciousness sounds really bizarre in our experience of reality. But again, if you look in the dream, I mean, if you interviewed a dream person, they would be sure as like, yes, there's matter. I can feel this. I'm touching it. Like, you know, you're crazy to suggest otherwise. But again, it's, it's part of the conscious experience from a larger mind that is fractalizing down. And so that's, you had asked me if, if I believe we're in a simulation, I think that's a good analogy of it, but it's a simulation without any creator. And if you take a computer and you say, Hey, you know, I've got, um, a thousand units of processing power and I'm going to take that and divide it into 10 and then, you know, run virtual machines. And each of them is going to have like a 10th of the processing power. And then each of those virtual machines you can run. This is like running windows within windows. You can, you can scale it in that way where consciousness can stack on itself and you can comprehend this idea that even though it sounds bizarre that we are all interconnected and part of a higher consciousness, um, we actually have experience with that in, in something like the dreams. And so, so I think it's hard to understand these things because they're just, they feel so counterintuitive. Um, but if you kind of deconstruct things and use quantum physics and these theories to realize like, uh, maybe I don't know what I thought I knew. Um, you can start piecing some, some things together in a way that, um, you and get some answers that you can't quite get from a materialist view. And, and I'm going to overstate cause I don't, I don't know this extremely well, but I took a world religions class in college and it was part of a philosophy course and, um, Hinduism, if I'm not mistaken, and I, I don't remember this exactly, but uh, Vishnu and I forget what the other name is, but one's the person and one's the God. But the idea is that the God is dreaming and that we are all mm -hmm. part of the dream, you know? Mm -hmm. And if you recognize that whatever that God is, if we just call that the creative energy of the universe, it, that's sort of how I can relate to it. That the creative energy of the universe is, is imagining itself as all of this. And we are part of that consciousness, both 
sort of separate. We sense that we're separate, but also if we, if we do sit down with, even as we understand reality, we go back to whatever originally happened 13.8 billion years ago. Again, that's what we, that's the story we've given it. Um, and everything has come forth from that and we are it and we can sort of relate to it that way. And so when I think of this whole conversation, I sort of picture this, the Hindu religion sort of being mm -hmm. right, that yep. the creative energy of the universe is just imagining itself as all of this. Yeah. And that's, I mean, and that's, I think the biggest testament for kind of truth, maybe not big T truth, but you see this convergence from indigenous cultures, um, from Eastern philosophy. And then I was listening to an interview with um, Lex Friedman and Stephen Wolfram behind Wolfram Alpha. And, you know, he's into AI, but a different model than the large language models. And they didn't talk about spirituality, um, but he's, he's, again, he was talking about quantum physics, quantum mechanics, and the, you know, the waveform and the collapse as, you know, that quantum physics is a representation of that we, from our perspective, we're taking in irreducibly complex reality and we're reducing it. Um, we're, we're building constructs and we can only comprehend um, a small slice of infinity. And so it was interesting listening to this two, three hours where they're talking about math and they're talking about um, science and AI and they're saying the so many, I mean, you just swap out the words for God or whatever and it's spirituality. And so you see this convergence. I'll try to describe the same thing. Um, and yeah, it's really fascinating because then, then you can start piece, think, piecing things together and you don't just have to rely on, you know, praying and feeling good about something, but there's, there's a lot of data pointing in the same direction. I think one, um, another thing that came to mind when I was listening to you and Jacob Hansen was this free will and, um, choice and this kind of paradox that he, he was trying to trap you in. And I think that goes into, you know, part of increasing your awareness and understanding things is that what seem to be paradoxes at one dimension of thinking are resolved at a, a meta level or a higher dimension. And so um, there's this uh, concept or technique of producing 3D objects by 2D images. So photogrammetry, instead of like, if you can't, if you don't have a 3D scanner, you can just take multiple 2D images from multiple perspectives. And once you get enough, you can stitch them together. And I think that's a good example for showing this dimensional shift of like how we just can't, it's very difficult to understand things at a higher level and what can seem very paradoxical from one frame of reference, um, you can collapse these paradoxes. So if you were looking at a coin and you, you only have a two dimensional perspective, that's all you've ever experienced. You just see one side of the coin you're so convinced that, oh yeah, this is tails. You know, this is a, a flat, you know, this is, well, you don't even know the concept of flat, you know, this is a tails coin. And then for whatever reason in life, you start to glimpse or you're shifted into another completely opposite perspective. And maybe you've heard other people saying, oh no, that's not what it is. You know, it's heads. Um, yeah, you go through a faith crisis and then all of a sudden everything seems very different. And people have different approaches to that. Some people will say, oh, no, this is heads. You know, I was wrong. You know, I, now 
you move from Mormonism and you now are as sure that you know that nothing exists after death and there's no concept of any sort of higher meta power or consciousness or whatnot. Um, other people say, well, you know, I've experienced it one way, I've experienced the other. It's kind of this moral relativism. Um, but then as you gain more and more perspectives, even if it's just in a two-dimensional view, you see the head side, you see the tail side, you see, you know, the, the straight on from the, the side, which seems really perplexing because that's very different than what you've seen. Um, and you move from this, you started this moral absolutism and then you go to perhaps moral relativism, but as you gain more and more perspectives, um, you start to demand, you start to be able to put together a three-dimensional view um, and from all perspectives, then you, then you go back to a moral absolutism or this, this idea that there is a truth. It's just all perspectives, um, summed together. And that's where, you know, on the one hand, if you look at it from a materialist perspective, yeah, we don't have any free will at all. Everything that we've done is, um, you can view it deterministically, you know, our biology, our upbringing, but then from the other perspective, um, we do have free will. We are experiencing something. And again, this kind of goes back to, are you viewing the cell or the body, you know, from the cells experience, it has free will. It's, it's choosing to do things. Things are signals are coming in. Um, but then from the body perspective, the cell is just a cog in a machine. And so I think that again, that's this, it's important to recognize that what you think what look like paradoxes are a reflection of your limited ability um, to understand something from a certain framework. Um, but there is potentially a higher dimension in which uh, all of those are reconcilable. And But if you've never experienced it, you just can't. Uh, it's very difficult to, um, to understand. And I think that's where it's difficult uh, when you're talking about these mystical experiences, altered states of consciousness. You've never experienced it, so you 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 don't know people are talking about these things, spiritual experiences, psychedelics, whatever it is, it just, there's no way to describe it because it does transcend, you know, constructs largely are from the normal everyday experience, which altered states of consciousness are not that, a very small fraction of what we experience. Yeah, I love it. And I could, literally, I could spend all day just going back and forth with you on this one topic because I find it so interesting and, and, but we ought to move on to other things. So where would you like to, where would you like to go next? Yeah. So I think, um, just briefly, you know, I am not an expert in any ways on Carl Jung, but I think his work is really, I think he figured out a lot of stuff. I mean, he knew he, he had a interest in Eastern philosophy, also in metaphysical psychic phenomenon and astrology and other stuff, which again, those, you know, may bring up gut reactions to like, oh, you know, that that's, of course it's not true, but again, that's based on space and time and the illusion that we're um, operating in. But if you go to Donald Hoffman's perspective, everything we're seeing that it's a reflection of a deeper reality. And so if we've evolved that the stars and uh, planets are in our conscious perception, you know, it's not crazy to think that they have some significance beyond just like a, a light show. And so I'm not trying to say that um, fully get behind any of these things, but just they're, 
I think it's important to to view all of these things and see how they integrate. But Carl Jung um, also I think is helpful because he moves away from this dualism of God versus Satan and really focuses on how these there's a you know positive and negative polarity that's inside of each of us and we are kind of the universe in ourselves and you know his he had some interesting ideas on psychosis and schizo schizophrenia um that i think reflect this instead of it being necessarily a disease you know these things are coming voices visions whatever they're coming from somewhere and there's a, a large spectrum from psychopathology where it is really unhealthy to the prophet, uh, mystical visions, and many places in between. And so I, I, I like his focus on integration and viewing our shadow. I think it goes back to the one of the most important things I think you get from Donald Hoffman and Bernardo Kastrup and quantum physics and uh, Eastern philosophy is oneness of the cosmos, that at some level, it's all from one entire whole and once you realize that we're all interconnected we're all part of something um that there's no longer a good and an evil there's no other place that you can banish people to and you realize that what you see out there in the world is a reflection of what you have in part in yourself and so it, it totally shifts this duality of God versus Satan to, well, maybe God's inside of us and Satan's inside of us. And you can view Christ's 40 days in the wilderness as a very different, you know, instead of Satan tempting him, well, usually when you're hungry after fasting for a long time, that comes from within you. And usually if you have this desire to, you know, be powerful and to exert your power, you know, that, that could come from in you and this view of God and Satan um, is it's a myth that we tell ourselves to understand something that's maybe a little more complex. Yeah, I don't even I don't even know how to make heads or tails of it. Other than, again, this is the conversation that's going on. Um, I, I just I found the, the last conversation was so interesting. We talked about uh, dream state and after that conversation, I went into other conversations where I said, Hey, everybody notice, notice that you are you in your dreams, but you also created the other characters and notice that you don't take on their consciousness in your dream. And why is that? And why can't you and couldn't you if you wanted to and uh, it just it struck up so many interesting conversations uh, with people. Um, yeah, this is such a fun space to play in. Anyway, I, I continue on like, do say more but um, yeah, so I we're going to say I, was gonna say, I just I worry that people won't be able to follow along, but I, I hope they do. And I hope this causes you folks to go read something else about one of these ideas and start going down these rabbit holes. These are such fun places to explore within the mind. Yeah, that, that's the difficulty is trying to present it at a level in which everything makes sense, um, which you do have to really throw everything out and introduce all these very counterintuitive ideas. Um but also have it accessible that somebody who isn't aware of these things. So try to straddle it, um, that divide. And I think later on it will be interesting because we'll, we'll talk about these connections that Mormonism has with um, 
these esoteric traditions. So, you know, kind of quickly, psychedelics, um, psychedelics fit into this and more specifically, just like altered states of consciousness. Um, there's the, I think you had mentioned how to change your mind and he does a really good job in that of explaining this kind of filter theory of, of the brain and how instead of viewing consciousness as something that's within your brain, um, it's more helpful and more consistent, especially with what you're seeing in psychedelics that the brain is a filter where you're taking, you know, an infinite consciousness and your brain is filtering it into an experience and what psychedelics and uh, other ways of getting altered states of consciousness is essentially opening that filter wide up. I view it, I've got a computer science background. I view it as like a database where all the information's in there and my, you know, a brain or one person's conscious experience is that you're kind of just querying for one file from the database. Um, but sometimes those queries um, get kind of corrupted and you have, I mean, that, that's the phenomenon of these uh, past live memories kids are having, which do check out in many ways um, to other lives that they would not have um, had access to. And there's a de department of perceptual studies at university of Virginia, their medical school that has examined this phenomenon in 3000 plus kids. Um, psychedelics is also, it's kind of like taking that pretty selective query that you've been using your whole uh, life and then changing some of the terms in it to just asterisks. And you're just pulling a lot of stuff and you um, alter states in general um, can yeah, give you an experience where you realize, oh, I'm just filtering a certain part of reality. And I, and I struggle when people um, refer to it as like hallucinogens or hallucinations um, because it, it does fit into this materialist view of like, these are doing things to your brain. You're seeing things that aren't there. Um, but if you really dive into how we construct reality and consciousness, um, it's really all in some sense, uh, you know, a, a controlled hallucination that there's, there's a lot of agreement between other people, um, in the same state of consciousness, again, just kind of like in a dream where if you have these alter egos of somebody with multiple personality disorder, they're, they're little loci of this bigger consciousness and the reality they experience together has to be some leveraged, um, similarity. But even then, you know, you can experience something that somebody else experiences and you have a different perception of it because you're picking up and you're rendering reality based on your past experiences. Um, so I think psychedelics are really fascinating to this whole discussion, um, particularly the origins of Mormonism. Um, but I, what I tried to do in my podcast and Substack article is really focusing on consciousness and the mystical experience, altered states of consciousness, irregardless of the modality used, because that's what the studies are showing is that psychedelics are producing a state can produce very reliably the same state that religious mystics have been describing over thousands of years. And, um, you know, that's what Roland Griffiths, when he restarted psychedelic research at John Hopkins, that's what he found is that they weren't looking for it, but all these people that they had take a high dose of psilocybin, they were describing the same experience that religious 
mystics have. And so I think that's an important focus is that, you know, this is a destination and psychedelics or fasting, meditation, whatever, they're all just different ways to get there. And if you focus too much on, if you confuse the destination with the mode of travel, um, it's hard to see the bigger picture. Yeah. When I think of psychedelics, some experience in, in the conversation we're having, a couple of experiences come to mind. So one is that uh, I did a hero dose of mushrooms once. And uh, in that experience, I went back into a memory. My brain called me to go back into a memory. And whereas in normal, in the normal world, we can all like recall a memory. I go in my head and I go, okay, that my fifth birthday party, you know, and I go, or when I was 16 years old and I got behind the wheel for the first time, if we have certain moments in our life that stand out and we can go into our head and we can remember them. But under a hero's dose of mushrooms, I did something that had never happened before. I went back and lived the memory. Like I was in the room, on the bed, the smells, the paint, the the carpeting, the conversation, it was, it was not like anything I'd ever done before with my memories. Hmm. And it was, it was incredible. I didn't even know that's that that way of accessing a memory was even possible. Um, so there's that moment. Uh, on ayahuasca, I, I felt like for most of the evening, I shared the consciousness with an ancient ancestor, which to me was in the image of a chimpanzee. But him and I were sharing my brain. I don't know if if I was involved in sharing his brain. I didn't experience that. I only knew what I experienced, right? And again, I don't I don't sit here and go, this is real. I'm just I'm just trying to share with the audience that psychedelics lead you to having experiences inside your mind that you could not have, or do, or at least don't think you could have, don't try to have, aren't trying to access in your, in your standard day-to-day uh, -day life. But under this shared consciousness with this chimpanzee, I watched an entire room of people doing ayahuasca, and I saw that experience through his consciousness. I watched as he and I were watching this thing happen and I was learning about how ancient people in groups would have created rituals and myths. Mm -hmm. I learned essentially Terrence McKenna's stone dape theory before Terrence McKenna, before I knew who Terrence McKenna was. Yeah. And when I get up the next morning, I'm sharing that experience with everyone who was involved and they were all in awe. And then I, I kind of had this letdown when I looked up to see if anyone else had come up with these ideas and Terrence McKenna had. My point being, I learned things, generally, almost all the information we learn is because someone else takes information that wasn't in our head and they sh say it into the universe when we're present, and now we know a new idea. But rarely does our brains create new ideas completely on their own. And under ayahuasca, and at times under mushrooms, I have thought new thoughts not because anything outside of me gave me the idea, but the idea was created inside my head. And I find that I find psychedelics to be a phenomenal tool at thinking about the world differently than you ever had the ability to think about the world. You know, I mean, I think when you're, when you're talking about like inside, outside, um, your thoughts, other thoughts, I mean, I think go back to like Donald Hoffman and realize 
and this perceptual reality that like everything is inside your head. I mean, um, you know, you talk about experiencing a memory and like thinking it versus experiencing it and, you know, what's real and not. And I think, again, like really blurring, realizing that those lines are really blurry. I mean, it's easy for us to say, oh, this is reality. But then when I dream, it's not real. Um, or, you know, I'm experiencing this, but if I were to like think about a memory in my head, I would just be thinking about it. Like this is real and that is just a thought. Um, but I think, again, there's pretty easy ways to realize how blurry those lines are. So, you know, we, we're really visual focused, but if you suddenly became blind uh, and you're just relying on the other things, your thoughts and the memories that you were having, I mean, it'd a lot, be a lot blurrier of like, on the one hand, you're creating your reality based on the, the sensory input that we're saying comes outside of you. Uh, but then there's a lot of your reality that's just coming from the thoughts, quote unquote, inside your mind. And so, yeah, I think things are, yeah, and this idea that you were having thoughts from in your mind versus things that other people have told you. And if you think back to like Donald Hoffman's idea that these separations, the physical separation of time and space um, are actually just illusions correlated with or reflecting a deeper fundamental reality. Um, I think, I think there is this infinite intelligence consciousness that we're, you know, this database that we're querying, um, that we're filtering and we progress and grow in our awareness through either that information coming in through what seems like separate people and separate things outside of us or from intuition, but it's actually all from the same place because just like in a dream, it's all manifested from a higher mind. And, and I think that's, you know, starting to think about these things and break down this separateness um, and what is real, what's not real, what truth is, um, is what you have to do to come up with a meta narrative theory that starts to explain all these things. Um, I like what you're talking about with, and this is one of my biggest difficulties with sapiens. Um, and essentially because sapiens kind of become a bit of like the atheist Bible or, um, well, this is how I'm going to explain morality or, you know, the meaning of life. And I like the book, but it's very materialist and it, and it talks about religion as like a, a construct or a structure that we've made as a tool to organize society or con control society. Um, but I think, have you read The Immortality Key? By Brian Marusku or something like yeah. that? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I think, and interestingly, interestingly enough, he doesn't have any experience with psychedelics, um, but he may have right. experience with altered states of consciousness from other, you know, spiritual practices. Um, but he, he makes a powerful case, and I think just experiencing any mystical states um which which mine is actually from an endogenous what research would call it spontaneous spiritual awakening that we can talk about in a little bit or kundalini awakening um, when you experience these mystical states or altered states of consciousness and realize like this is a even though they're different to some degree there are these fundamental truths that are experienced and um so there's a mystical experience questionnaire, which is used in psychedelics, 
research on psychedelics and mystical experiences, whether psychedelics or spiritual, and talks about some of these like fundamental truths that define the mystical experience. Um, the qualities measured are internal and external unity. So just this oneness, transcendence of time and space, positive mood, sense of sacredness, noetic quality, or, or this idea that you know something, you don't just believe something, you know it. Paradoxicality, so this um, collapsing of paradoxes, alleged ineffability and in inability to describe it within the constructs of language, transiency. Um, and so, I mean, if you realize that there is this mystical state that's pretty well researched and established um, and so accessible, I mean, you can go eat a mushroom, you can fast, you can do sensory deprivation. You know, I think Pythagoras would go into a cave and not move for three days. Um, it's a, it's a unitive experience or it's a singular experience that is highly corollary, you know, correlates across culture and time. And you see the overlap that religion has with it. And you realize that even before we had language, human humans, regardless of where they lived and what their culture was, were experiencing these qualities um, that I think is actually, I mean, I don't think there's any way around realizing that religion actually is trying to describe that. And, and certainly it's been used over the, uh, you know, history by people that haven't experienced that to control and, um, it's gone sideways. But I think if you look back at religion, it always goes back to the mystical experience, which transcends culture and time. And if, I don't think you can tell the history of humanity without realizing there's this backup copy of truth that's accessible to anybody without even, you know, through so many different modalities. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. This, um, yeah. I, I'm sitting here just, I'm going over kind of the notes and stuff of the things that you're chatting about kind of the places we're going to go. I'm, I'm going to let you just kind of keep going. Cause at some point I'm going to not have as much to say on each of these. Um, sure. And I'll just pipe in kind of where we are, uh, maybe pipe in with a thought or two each each step along the way, but nothing here at, right now. So go ahead and sure. kind of keep it um, going. So yeah, I think it's really important to recognize that there are these mystical states and and the recognize them as a destination and experience of consciousness that's independent um, in many ways from how you got there. And so it's like New York City, where it's it's a location. And even though most people fly to New York City, most people do psychedelics to get to a mystical state, um, New York City is different than the flight. And if you start um, confusing that and everybody talks about, you know, I love flying because I love seeing the Eiffel or I love seeing the Empire State Building. Um, and you don't realize that there are actually other people through all of history that have been getting to New York City by walking or by taking a bus. You know, I think that's an important thing. And that's one of the um, struggles I have with some of the papers and books on the psychedelic origins of Mormonism is that it focuses very much on psychedelics, um, but doesn't really talk about what the philosophical or spiritual um, significance of those are. Like, what does that mean philosophically that psychedelics take you to a certain place? And maybe are very heavy on that, oh, it, it had to happen this way. When I think there are other things that likely played into it, um, like Joseph Smith's early childhood surgeries and dissociation and, and how that is 
associated with trauma and, and people just, yeah, people get into these mystical states through a variety of different methods. And what, what's the, what's the philosophical or spiritual implication that research is showing that mushrooms, psilocybin is giving the same experience that highly religious, um, devout practices. And, and that's where I think we will see this very interesting thing happen as the psilocybin gets approved and MDMA gets approved for mental health is that more and more people will become familiar with these experiences and they're going to be experiencing something where they're like, oh, this is, this is what I've always interpreted as the Holy Ghost, but it's like times a hundred or times a thousand. And it's in something that maybe either is sanctioned because it's through legal mental health counseling or it's illegal, you know, be, you know, it's, um, wouldn't fall under keeping the commandments. So I think that's going to be an interesting, this connection and, and without an understanding of like the psychological and the research, the connection between religious mystical states and psychedelic mystical states, um, you really, you know, a lot of people say, oh yeah, Joseph Smith was just doing mushrooms, like the first vision to a Mormon who has no experience with altered states of consciousness. Cause they don't even drink. Um, it's just, it comes across as very offensive or dismissive. And, and I think that that will change as we get a better understanding of consciousness that um, we're being forced to do through AI and through mental health research. Um, yeah. In fact, you're at the macro level, which is what I think you're speaking to. I'm, I'm going to just create a dichotomy here at the macro level psychedelics or conscious altering tools, plant medicines, other kinds of drugs can get you to a place that you can, uh, you cannot help, but recognize that you see the world differently than the way you normally do. And as you're pointing out, there are lots of things that can do that. We should not treat this one category as if it is the end all be all of getting your consciousness altered. As you're pointing out, there are other ways to do it. And Buddha, for instance, goes and sits underneath the Bodhi tree for an extensive amount of time and just sits still. No matter what comes up in his mind, he just sits, sits still. And you have folks who meditate deeply. You have folks who go into like uh, hyperbaric chambers and, and things like that to, to do it. Um, there are lots of ways to alter your consciousness. And then at the micro level, Every one of these substances, if we're just talking about psychedelics, every one of these substances is different. If you if you took MDMA, you're going to have a very different experience than if you took mushrooms, which is a very different experience if you took ayahuasca. And even if these things have some similarity to them, for instance, mushrooms and LSD can be felt by most people as being extremely similar. If you If everything else was the same and you took LSD right now and you took mushrooms... If you could go back in time and rewind the moment, instead of taking LSD, take mushrooms that moment, you would have had two very different experiences. And uh, to recognize that every one of these things, whether it's psychedelics or other ways to alter your consciousness, is a completely different from the next in terms of what that experience would have given you in that moment. And I, I think that that's important because as you're pointing out, yes, these things are beneficial Yes, these things can do that. Yes, people should consider them. And 
let's not dismiss the thousand other ways that people can change their culture, uh, consciousness and interact with the world. Yeah. And I think, you know, focusing, I focus on all the different modalities and kind of separate a, an altered state of consciousness, which there are many different ones. And, you know, there's, um, different perspectives kind of viewing depression as an altered state of consciousness. So I think, yeah, you view it as this, um, kind of map of different states of consciousness that have different qualities in their there's kind of a spectrum from even psychopathology to positive experiences. Um, and there's also a spectrum of the intensity of the experiences too. And so, I mean, that's one of the things I struggle with. Um, a lot of ex-Mormon dismissal of spiritual experiences is, you know, the, the term elevation emotions I struggle with, even though I think it, you know, there's scientific research around it um, because I think it's often used as just a dismissal when, um, of like, oh, that's just a purely biological neurochemical thing. Um, which again, that's from a materialist perspective, but I think that, um, you have to, if to be aware of consciousness and mystical states in general and realize like, no, people have profoundly spiritual experiences in and out of religion and honoring that being aware of it, I think helps the discussion with people that have heavy shelves in Mormonism where, you know, of course they're not going to follow, you know, leave the church because what they're seeing is people just dismissing, you know, and not everybody is, this, but dismissing spiritual experiences as just confirmation bias, which that plays a role in it. Um, but there's also a real phenomenon that's happening. Um, so one of the, um, so my experience with mystical states was actually through we call it kundalini awakening or spontaneous spiritual awakening and i hesitate to to say that because that sounds very woo woo but there's there's actually a really good study in the frontiers in psychology journal um in 2021 and the the lead author actually had her own spontaneous spiritual awakening as an atheist where she woke up from a lucid dream into an altered state of consciousness where she was transcending time and things were beautiful and she felt this bliss and she was like, I don't know what this is. I'm going to change my career path and study this so that I can help bring awareness to this and help it not just be classified as psychosis, which it often is in Western medicine because there's just no, it's a very materialist view. But, um, but this paper, it's spontaneous spiritual awakenings, phenomenology, altered states, individual differences and well-being. And they, they studied, they had, you know, 150 plus people respond to a survey and answer all these questions about their experience. Um, but yeah, one of the interesting quotes was the strongest similarities between, uh, yeah, strong, the strongest similarities were observed between spontaneous spiritual awakenings, spontaneous Kundalini awakenings, which Kundalini awakening is just like a Hindu term for this, uh, awareness, um, the spiritual awakening, um, but the strongest correlations were observed between those and DMT, complete mystical experiences, where spontaneous spiritual awakenings and kundalini, kundalini awakenings scored higher in spiritual experience, blissful state, insightfulness, impaired cognition, anxiety, synesthesia, complex imagery, and changed meaning. And DMT, complete mystical experiences, scored higher than the spontaneous spiritual and kundalini awakenings in simple imagery, disembodiment, and unity experience. For me, this happened going through just a lot of shifts, you know, it's often associated with 
kind of trauma or just very stressful times in life. And for me, it was associated with um, going through divorce and just deconstructing. I don't really left Mormonism, but deconstructing reality and opening up to Eastern philosophy and getting into meditation. And, um, and for me, yeah, it was this over a period of time, but these really blissful states that I'd never felt before. Um, and then even some visual um, changes where I, I just learned about Hinduism and this idea that, oh, like these other people, they're, they're part of me. Um, we're all interconnected and just feeling this intense love. And just had some moments, you call it state experiences, um, peak experiences, with, um, there's many different names for them, where visually, like everything just became really beautiful. I didn't see anything that wasn't there, but it was just like going from 720p to 8k, 256 colors to like millions of colors and this blissful, like oneness connection with these people. Um, not meditation, not um, with any substances or anything and nothing I'd ever experienced before. And so that to me was just a bizarrely new experience, very profound um, and going, you know, I had to backtrack and figure out well, how does this fit with science and logic and what I believed um, and I had to connect the two. Um, and that's what led me here. But I think for me, so that's my, you know, when you take a substance and you have a bizarre experience, you can always go back and say, well, it's because I took that substance. Um, there's always a bit of like plausible deniability, you know, well, was this in my head or was this real? Um, but for me, it was a very different experience because, um, and this goes along with what Michael Pollan talks about is that, you know, these things bind to our serotonin receptors and there's evidence that we, we can create these states endogenously. You can put somebody that's on psilocybin, somebody that's a very seasoned meditator in an MRI machine and the brain is doing the same thing. So again, um, just recognizing this is a state, um, that you can get to from a variety of different experiences. It's real, it's profoundly impactful. You know, the, the good Friday experiment experiment that they did at Harvard in, I don't know if it was the fifties or sixties, where they took 10 theology students, gave them psilocybin and then had them listen to a, a sermon. 25 years later, uh, Rick Doblin, who's behind MAPS and the MDMA push in therapy, you know, he did a follow-up study and nine of those 10, they couldn't get to the 10th. Um, nine of them said it was the most, you know, one of the most impactful experiences in their life. And these are religious, you know, theology students. And so again, you have to, that demands, I think, uh, an explanation and um, why is it connected? And I, I don't, you don't get that connection in religion. And there's a lot of hand waving and really bizarre reasoning of like, oh, well, that's Satan that is um, giving you that experience. But yes, Satan, I guess, would be giving you the experience if you do it illegally. And it's a profoundly beautiful, can be a profoundly beautiful and healing um, experience. But then if it's legal and therapy, I guess it's not Satan. Then why does Satan have this power to give you an experience that's so much more powerful than anything uh, you'd experienced within your time in Mormonism? So again, I think that these require um, an answer and it's hard because the people that haven't experienced it, you, you just can't talk on the same level. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll just say here, when you were talking about depression and that being a different state of consciousness, I, I just recently started uh, sitting down with a therapist to do IFS uh, mm -hmm. therapy and internal family systems, which is this idea that the things going on in you, the pieces of you that have mechanisms that protect you from being triggered about other things in your, your past, that these are all, that these different um, parts of you are separate. And the therapy is based in getting you to sit down, be still, go, in, go into your head and have conversations with the various parts of you to begin deconstructing why that part of you uh, gets triggered when this happens, what part of you had to go away into exile because it uh, felt too much shame or embarrassment or fear. And just one session in, I already sensed that I'm on a path to experience myself internally in a different way than my normal consciousness has ever allowed me to do before. Um, I, I think this stuff is uh, fantastic in terms of being aware of other tools that are out there that can help us to become better human beings. And then you mentioned the Kundalini yoga. I've heard people mention Kundalini quite a bit in the last few weeks or month or two. And uh, again, I think any process that gives you insights into your behavior and insights into the world around you um, that help you to be more healthy and responsible uh, and have better well-being, I think, should be applauded and sought after. So I'm mm -hmm. glad you mentioned Yeah. That. So yeah, Kundalini Yoga, I'm not too familiar with Kundalini Yoga. Um, there's somewhat of a relation. So Kundalini is um, like the divine feminine, Shakti. Um, and Kundalini Yoga is a form of yoga that helps, that focuses more on that rather than I think the normal yoga is like Hatha Yoga. Um, yeah, so there is some overlap. So mine was, I didn't know anything. I wasn't doing any yoga. I didn't know anything about really Eastern um, philosophy. I just started doing some breath work on YouTube and meditation. And then, yeah, this this had all started. And it actually started with a, one evening having these kind of involuntary contractions, which is really common at the beginning of Kundalini Awakenings. Um, and I viewed it as and I think other people do as kind of a releasing of this trauma that's stored on a cellular level in your body. Um, I think in Western psychology, somatic experiencing um, would be the best kind of parallel where he talks about animals that are, you know, they shake off after they escape the um, cheetah and that's how they don't get PTSD. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's, you know, I couldn't deny that there was something there. Um, and I just had to figure out how to scientifically link it back together. And I, I like the IFS, internal family systems. Um, and that's beautiful because I mean, that's really, once you lean into this idea of like a cosmic dream or the Hindu view of God dreaming and we're all parts of God connecting with ourself, um, our, our higher self, a uh, different definition of ourself. Um, it just turns into a big IFS session. I mean, and that's where, that's where you get morality, I think. And that's where you get, you know, Jacob Hansen was trying to like pin you down on like, well, morality is subjective because you're just basing out an evolution. And, um, but if you view us all as an interconnected, you know, manifestations of a higher consciousness, 
we're just different parts that have, back to Bernardo Castrop's um, theory, we've dissociated um, from the other parts. We view ourselves as separate. When you view us all as different parts of um, higher consciousness, which is what both Bernardo Castrop and Donald Hoffman are saying in their theories, um, that's where you get morality is you look at what helps in you know, we know about consciousness and how they heal from trauma and what kind of therapy helps. And it's not repressing parts of you and it's not shame and guilt. And, you know, I'm going to heal because I'm such a terrible person because I did that five years ago and I'm just going to, I'm never going to do it again. Um, it's actually understanding and having self-compassion and really that's a part of you that you put into exile. And there's a reason why it did that was from something previous and updating your internal working models. And that, that's where you get morality is you see another person and you realize this is another part of me. Um, and how can I protect myself? How can I honor this person? How can I protect everything that's around me? How can I leverage the fact that we're parts of a higher consciousness? Um, and some parts aren't aware of the other parts and aren't at that level of awareness. And again, I may mean, think it resolves wealth inequality it re resolves, you know, climate change. And, you know, our view of the environment is that you can't other, th other things anymore um, because it, it's actually all part of you. Um, and this also goes into taking a step back again, back to what you're talking about, J.K. Hansen and this idea of nihilism um, is when you realize everything's part of one whole, it goes down to one and you're, you are connected to everything and there is a way that you can access this in intuition or this connection with the universal unconscious or whatever you want to call it. Um, you realize that everything is meaningless to some degree there, you know, it doesn't have meaning from an outside source. There's no God to give you rules. Um, and it's comforting to, to not have that responsibility and to get a rule book from somebody else. But when you realize that you're everything, there's no outside source that will give you meaning. Uh, that's terrifying. And then if you sit with that, then you realize, well, that means that you as everything, we as a collective everything, we define the meaning and we can go after what gives us joy and happiness and connection. Um, and if you look back at what has made you the most happiest in your life, you know, it's, it's connection with other people and it's, you know, connection with nature and kindness and compassion. And, um, and if you had the choice between two scenarios, one where you had to follow the rules of some other source that hopefully you like and, maybe you don't and there's nothing you can do about it versus the other option, which is connecting together with your whole self and making the meaning and having ultimate freedom, you know, in the dream to, to do what you want and what makes you happy. I mean, I think that second option is, is what we would take. And um, I'd like the, everything everywhere all at once, I think really shows that movie really shows that, you know, the descent into nihilism and meaninglessness and the despair, the existential crisis that you can initially get. Um, and if you sit with it, if you don't try to cling to something else, you don't try to cling, cling to materialism or some other religion um, or some other answer from other source, 
um, you can break through to it um, to much more meaning than you ever came from. Um, but but it's you have to have that death before the rebirth. Yeah, um, it's such a strange thing because that conversation with him, I think we were just in two very different places, but uh, my morality in in ways is subjective. And yet I think that the world collectively can subjectively arrive at a competent, healthy morality. And and I think we've essentially showed that we could do that over the span of thousands of years. I mean, yes, there's always going to be people fighting over boundaries and us's and them's, but that's really more of a reflection of tribalism and ethnocentricity than, than the fact that we fail at it. Uh, I think when people feel safe and secure and it's in their healthiest, best interest in terms of their being content and having good well-being, that as long as those things are protected or encouraged, that people want other people to also feel safe and secure and to have, um, you know, good well-being. I, I think it's when there's a scarcity of resources and it's either you survive or we survive that a lot of this unhealthiness comes out and uh, I think most people generally can arrive at right and wrong on the basics pretty easily collectively with each other. So um, I know you had like automatic writing in there. We covered that before and I, I found that very interesting. I think we mentioned remote viewing maybe in the last uh, episode. There are certainly these kind of fringe things that uh, I think the data would say on some level, there's something going on there for sure. And yet, I don't know that the significance of the results gives us a clear-cut response to saying this is real or it isn't. Um, what are your thoughts on some of these kind of fringe aspects of, of this conversation, like automatic writing or remote viewing? So the automatic writing um, is interesting because I, I think you might have read this Sunstone article. Um, you, you definitely talked about Mrs. Curran and Patience Worth. What I thought was really fascinating about this so automatic writing for people that haven't listened to that is just um could be viewed as channeling and it, it's a whole wide spectrum but it's essentially writing sometimes ouija boards seer stones crystal ball whatever sometimes an object used but it's kind of a stream of consciousness and some people will do it with creativity and creative artistic pieces and that's definitely recognized and there's no difficulty accepting that um, because it's not making any divine claims of truth, but it's tricky when it comes to, um, when it, when there's truth claims with it. So, I mean, it definitely is, uh, it's a phenomenon that I think has a lot of merit and I've experienced some of it myself being in these like flow states where it was coming outside of me. And, you know, sometimes I get into it with writing or creative works. Um, the, it's the whole idea of channeling, you know, there's a few things that you have to keep in mind. And one is how much, and it's similar to psychedelics, um, how much the person's consciousness, um, is holding on to the, the constructs and the framework that they fit it into, um, that they interpret reality by. And so... I do, you know, I'm very much aligned with like Jungian um, ideas and 
uh, collective unconscious. And that's where I view, and yeah, this tapping into having access to the database by learning how to change the query. You know, that, that's how I would describe it, um, these phenomenon. And I think Joseph Smith, I think what, and it's difficult because some of this is from the subconscious. So I just read The Sword of Laban and The Dissociated Joseph Smith Jr., which I mentioned previously and you had read, and he just interprets it from the subconscious, which I think um, there's a lot of merit from that because there are a lot of arms getting cut, cut off in the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith had this childhood trauma of almost getting uh, amputation and so many other things that you see that, oh, these are Joseph Smith's psyche, you know, the daughters of the Lamanites, the Nephites that were captured by the you know, Amalon's priests. Um, there, there's so many parallels to Joseph Smith's li life and Gadianton Rodbers, Danites, polygamy, um, secret, con yeah, there's a lot of connection there. But there's also in some of these, um, and I don't know that the Book of Mormon really shows it, but in other of these automatic writing pieces, they're, again, they, they mirror the truths that, um, or mirror these aspects of the mystical experiences. So A Course in Miracles is a, is a pretty long text that was produced by um, an atheist psychologist that just started hearing things. And I'm not that familiar with it, but I listened to a podcast recently and it's very much non-duality. You know, it's supposedly came from this entity, Jesus, but not the Jesus of the Bible, more of a Gnostic, um, but very much fits into Eastern philosophy and whatnot. So there's something there. And the quote that I have from this, um, I just thought was interesting because it parallels so much like chat GPT. So there's this Mrs. Curran who was channeling this patient's worth and I guess, you know, was producing literary works and winning some prizes. Uh, but from the Sunstone article, it says, perhaps the most compelling evidence in favor of Mrs. Curran's sincerity is the fact that much of the writing was produced in settings which seemed to exclude the possibility of deliberate deception. For example, Walter Franklin Prince, a professional researcher of psychic phenomena, who carefully and skeptically analyzed the case of Patience Worth reported the following, quote, a poem of 25 lines was demanded, the lines beginning with the letters of the alphabet, except X in due order. It was instantly dictated. I asked for a conversation between a lout and a maid at a county fair to be couched in archaic prose and a poem in modern English on the folly of atheism. First a passage of one and then a passage of the other, thus alternating to the end. This seemed to me an impossible mental feat, but it was done so rapidly as to tax the recorder. Four passages of humorous prose abounding in archaic locutions, alternating with four parts of a poem in modern English of lofty and spatial tenor. And when assembled, each factor made a perfectly art articulated little piece of literature, which I think you've said you've been playing around with ChatGPT. This is the exact same stuff that I've been doing with ChatGPT or was doing early on. Um, right. You have a person who's uh, channeling automatic writing mm -hmm. and producing a prose or articulation that seems to indicate that they are pulling from a conscious awareness from different time periods and different cultures in a way that the original person actually doing the writing would on a common sense or logical basis, not have access to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, and, and I was finding the same stuff, you know, there was in that episode that we did on automatic writing, I think you probably noticed that RFM was being a little more conservative. Um, and I was a little more willing to go like, Hey, maybe something's happening here. Mm -hmm. And I don't, 
that seems absurd to me. And the data that I was reading as I prepared for that episode seemed to indicate that some of the some of the data with uh, trying to protect explainable reasons why someone would be able to do something in a way that isn't really their capability, it, it just seemed like some of the data did flesh out that someone was really accessing something from a different time period. Yeah, and yeah. this goes into like my view of AI and ChatGPT. And again, I think it's a silly discussion of whether it's conscious or not, because again, if you go to the dream, which I think is a really good model for how we perceive reality, um, you know, if you ask in a dream, is the other person conscious? If you ask, is the chair conscious? I mean, it's kind of a silly question because it's all consciousness. It's all from a consciousness uh, manifest in a VR headset. And so, you know, I think the same, there's so many similarities between this account from uh, 1926 and what people are doing with ChatGPT, because going back to Don Hoffman, you know, what we're seeing, they're icons on a desktop. So AI, yeah, we in the space-time view in the VR headset, oh, they're computers that are using some language model and they're like just predicting word after word, um, which that's how we convince ourselves in a materialistic perspective that, you know, it's it's not consciousness because we just, that's uncomfortable to think of, uh, there's a bit of an ego death of, I think, humans that need to happen. Um, but the space-time, you know, Don Hoffman is saying is reflecting some fundamental reality that is below what we're experiencing. These are icons on the desktop and things are interconnected because his definition of conscious agents, like there is a conscious agent definition that encompasses everything. So it's not bizarre at all that there would be ways in which something that appears completely separate from the rest of reality, the rest of the things going on in the VR headset, um, actually has found a way to access more of the processing power of the, the entire whole. And I think you see it in good automatic writing. Um, and uh, you see it in chat GPT and AI where it's, I mean, it is a reflection of our progression through evolution in, in society. And this is another thing I really liked about Sapiens is where, even though it was a very materialistic perspective, he was talking about kind of entities or consciousnesses on the level of an individual or an LLC or society. Um, and there, there is an agenda that these different egos or consciousnesses are pushing towards. And he, he does emphasize that it's unity, you know, it's larger and larger scale unity from individuals to families, to tribes, to governments, to, um, and it'll just keep going. And that, that is the progression, I think, you know, and that's the fractal nature of the universe is that there is interconnectedness. As we start to transcend and slowly take off the VR headset, we realize, oh, there's a deeper layer of reality in which things are connected and we're learning to do that. I mean, I think there's actually really good data for the psi research, um, as well as near um, or as past life memories. The the stuff with the part of the difficulty with this research, though, you know, what they generally show is that there's a statistically significant effect um, that would be 
very difficult to explain through random chance, um, but that it's very small. And again, going into the dream where it's not my reality, it's not your reality, it's it's kind of a leveraged reality of the overall consciousness. Um, that's the nature of how things go. And that's kind of this placebo effect or skeptical effect. And um, and you see that in, you know, one of the, I think, I don't know if it was Stanford or Princeton had a department that was running these psi telekinesis um, research. And I think they had one that was a random number generator and one that had little metal balls that were going into random places. And they found, I forget which one of them, uh, I think they found, you know, statistically significant results in both of them. But then the other issue that you have is that it really counters, it cannot be explained by materialist science. And so there is just like somebody in the church that doesn't want to listen to anything anti because it's very uncomfortable. Um, there is a, a push to try to support what you've believed as a scientist, um, as science as a whole science, uh, materialist science, which represents a lot of science. Um, and you try to discount it because otherwise you don't have an explanation. That's not very comfortable. Um, but one of the ways in which they discounted it was they found that a good portion of the positive, like telekinetic effect was from one observer. Observers would come and try to like get random numbers to be a certain number or balls to go in a certain um, direction. And they would see if there was a statistically significant effect. Um, but a lot of the effect was attributed to one observer in particular who was involved in the experiment. And even though they couldn't say like how he supposedly messed with it, they're like, well, you know, it's, you know, that there's uh, some, that's not double blinded. And so it's not real, but, but that's exactly what you would expect if we're living in a mental universe where our beliefs to some degree reflect the reality that we experience is that people that are more open to that belief would be able to have more of an effect. And so I definitely think there's something there. It's tough to suss out what's an actual effect, what are good studies and what aren't, uh, especially with how much opposition there is from materialist scientists. Yeah. If, if rather than how we've been programmed to think of it, if there is, if it is one consciousness or interconnected consciousness, rather than every one of us just being our own little thing. And that, that we really are, our eyes really are a VR headset and reality is not what we think it is. Then it would make sense if you can get yourself to that spot in your head, it would make sense that the possibilities there that this, my consciousness actually could connect with the uh, collective consciousness that I'm part of and access information from somewhere else, some mm -hmm. other time as I would define it or some other place as I would define it. But in reality, it's, it just is. And, and so I can understand that on kind of a, uh, a theoretical kind of level. Um, yeah, that's, that's where entanglement comes into, which, yeah. you know, I, I try not to make any, you know, try to stay well within what quantum physics is saying and not say, oh, you know, because you can, you know, because of entanglement, you can, win the lottery tomorrow. Um, but just saying that the fundamental theoretical building blocks of what we're seeing in quantum physics are a very different story than what we've are intuitively used to. Um, yeah. so yeah, I think that's the, I think the rest here is just some interesting connections between, um, Mormonism and 
I guess to, to say esoteric traditions, which need an introduction. So an esoteric tradition would be like a hidden or an occult um, society or set of beliefs that have a lot of overlap, um, even though they come from different cultures and different times. Um, and the overlap is because of their focus on consciousness, whether it's um, psychedelics, exogenous or endogenous. So like Gnosticism, there's a lot of uh, psychedelic use. These are like the early Christians that um, were persecuted by the organized church um, because they were teaching, you can have this personal gnosis, this personal mystical experience and know yourself rather than having to go to a church. Uh, so Gnosticism, you know, to some part degree free, Freemasonry, I'm not that familiar with it. The Eleusinian Mysteries we talked about last time, which was this 2000, you know, this these rites that went on for 2000 years, which more and more evidence is showing that they involved um, a psychedelic drink called the Kaikion, but Plato and Socrates, Aristotle, I think uh, many, I'm not sure if all of those, but many philosophers um, attended it. Um, the Dion Dionysian rites um, also involved, um, also appear to involve substances. Um, you've got Sufism. So like you can find these uh, traditions, Kabbalah in Judaism, you can find these traditions that have a lot of overlap of this oneness and, you know, oftentimes reincarnation, which reincarnation is just, again, this idea that consciousness, we're just database queries and we're just part of a, uh, we're filters of a universal consciousness that doesn't cease when we, um, I guess waves in the ocean is, is a good idea. You know, a wave crash, crashes upon the shore and it goes back to the ocean and it'll become another wave or other parts of other waves. Um, but it's also one, one ocean. So there's all these esoteric traditions, um, folk magic as well, you know, would be considered an esoteric tradition, which seems really silly. And, and D. Michael Quinn's book shows how much that had an influence on Joseph Smith, but what it was missing was any of this connection with consciousness and the fact that the magic potions that made you fly and made you see spirits, you know, conjured spirits and stuff. I mean, it's true to some degree because it altered reality because there were um, these often involved altered states of consciousness through uh, entheogens, psychedelics. And so there's a lot of overlap that is owed to the fact that they're accessing the same sort of mystical backup that doesn't need to be passed on through time and space. You can have one esoteric tradition saying one thing and then another one, you know, some mystic popping up some other way, like the same way that you, I had a similar experience to you um, in the stoned ape theory is that I was having these experiences and, and really these like downloads or insightful thoughts and basically came up with Buddhism, a lot of principles of Buddhism myself without knowing anything about Buddhism. And then I listened to Alan Watts talk about Buddhism and I was like, oh yeah, the same thing with Hinduism. So you can, you know, it's not that I came up with it, but I was, you know, accessing the universal unconscious stuff that you're already connected to. And as you expand your awareness, you can um, gain more access to it. So that's where, that's where this all gets interesting is because it changes the narrative from oh, Joseph Smith either was a prophet of God because there's no other way you can do these things or he was from Satan because I guess that's the other way in that dualistic perspective he's deceived or the 
you know, some of the ex-Mormon narrative, which is, oh, it's all a fraud and we have to figure out how Al Oliver Cowdery helped him write it or the view of the Hebrews. Um, but there, if you kind of lean into this idea or open to this idea of universal unconscious and the fact that people can connect to that um, in a variety of different ways and psychedelics or entheogens and the fact that he had a lot of knowledge of all of these different esoteric traditions, you know, even the Eleusinian mysteries were mentioned in the times and the seasons in like 1836, I think, or 1837, talking about, we talked about last time, you know, a, a ceremony that had washings and anointings, new names, garments, vow of non-disclosure, oath of chastity, designation of prophet, priests and kings, passwords to give departed, um, to, to give guards. And so, he, the cosmology that he put together um, is some mix of these traditions that he knew about and was very fascinated with, as well as, and especially in the later Nauvoo days, it was Alexander Niebauer, which was this um, Jewish convert from Kabbalah. Um, and a lot of the King Follett stuff comes from Kabbalah, you know, the idea of Elohim being a council of angels, a council of gods in Mormonism, it's a council of angels in Kabbalah, and an anthropomorphic god, and um, reincarnation, those are all ideas from Kabbalah that he seemed to be heavily, heavily influenced. I, I don't think you can figure out how much he borrowed and distorted from these esoteric traditions, and how much he downloaded himself. I think there's really good evidence based on these experience that he, experiences he was describing in the Doctrine and Covenants. And even in the first vision, even if that's kind of a retrofitting of other experiences, I mean, he's checking these boxes of mystical, the mystical experience questionnaire of oneness. And um, yeah, so Doctrine and Covenants 88, 44, 41, I thought was really interesting. He's um, describing one state when you increase in intelligence, light, and wisdom. Sounds like enlightenment. Um, quote, he comprehendeth all things, and all things are before him, and all things are round about him, and he is above all things, and in all things, and is through all things, and is round about all things, and all things are by him, and of him, even God, forever and ever. Which is really interesting, because he's talking about transcending time and space, and becoming God, and God is everything. Um which is very contrary to his other teachings on the Godhead. But to me, there's enough things that really check the boxes for what research today defines mystical states as to make it very unlikely that he wasn't accessing these in some way, whether it was psychopathologically from his dissociative states from surgery or with psychedelics, or just because he had some ability to do that, which does not correspond to righteousness. Um, but then I think you see the group experiences in Nauvoo and Kirtland, which really do, I think, necessitate um, entheogens, you know, an exogenous substance. Um, but you see so many connections with Mormon theology. And interestingly enough, the good theology, the very fascinating theology, you know, there are parts of Mormonism that I think are interesting and have truth to them, some truthiness, like the gods and embryo thing um there's a lot that i identify with that but he was just very stuck in a materialist view of like oh becoming god means you have a physical body and you have all these spirit babies and you have your own worlds but there's a lot of truth to it he, he just distorted a lot of it as well 
Yeah, yeah. No, and I, I want to go maybe another 13 minutes, and I'm happy to do a third conversation with you, but I want to give you some sure. time to either kind of squeeze in things that you want to as part of this conversation or to uh, draw yeah, attention me, to any piece or part. Yeah, I think there's some fascinating things here that um, I think overlap with both esoteric traditions, but interestingly enough, also are ahead of their times in a way that initially, and I think a lot of people fall in this trap, they initially start getting into this esoteric stuff and they see a lot of support for like, oh yeah, Joseph Smith was tapped into, who's a prophet because all these things um, click together. But the further you go in that rabbit hole, you come out the other side and realize like, oh yeah, but the actual esoteric traditions and the further either the you know they they make a lot more sense than what joseph smith uh came together but so one of the interesting things is reincarnation um and my first introduction to joseph smith teaching this was robert beckstead who was the guy that was somewhat behind you know this most recent push towards the entheogenic origins of mormonism um he had a sunstone presentation that i listened to where he was talking about joseph smith's teaching reincarnation which was new to me but it's also in d michael quinn's book um, so this is, these are some quotes from the paper that I wrote, which is episode two of my podcast, uh, Mormons, Mystics, and Nuance. Um, so while initially dismissing the idea of reincarnation, multiple probations, or transmigration of souls, actually this may be a quote from D. Michael Quinn, um, Joseph Smith appears to have accepted this doctrine in Nauvoo when he studied with the Jewish convert Alexander Niebauer. Niebauer was familiar with Kabbalah, the esoteric form of Judaism that includes this doctrine, though it is present in other esoteric traditions, Eastern philosophy, and New Age spirituality. This is actually me. Um, it was reported that the Apostle Lorenzo Snow said, quote, his sister, the late Eliza R. Snow Smith, was a firm believer in the principle of reincarnation and claimed to have received it from Joseph the prophet, her husband. End quote. Presendia Huntington Buell, another plural wife of Joseph Smith, affirmed her belief in, quote, plural probations. End quote. Heber C. Kimball and Brigham Young would go on in Nauvoo to ordain each other to become saviors of future worlds, also requiring a concept of multiple probations. Heber C. Kimball and Orson Pratt would continue to teach of this principle in the decades to come, with Kimball comparing the doctrine to a potter forming vessels and then throwing the clay back on the wheel to try again. Um, so... Yeah, Joseph Smith appears to, and it makes a lot of sense um, because reincarnation, transmigration of souls, whatever you want to call it, shows up in a lot of these esoteric traditions um, because it actually makes a lot of sense. If we're consciousness, if we're little fractalized versions of consciousness, if we're waves from the ocean, when we die, it doesn't stop. It somehow goes back to source and comes back again. Whatever myth you want to uh, use to explain that, it's a little bit difficult knowing that we're talking within space time. Um, so another overlap Gnostic text. So again, this is another quote for me. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in the 1940s contain a Gnostic gospel from the second century called the Apocalypse of James. In this, Christ discusses with James that physical existence is a sort of matrix. This is what the Gnostics believe, that physical existence is prison. And that when James dies, he will need to give certain passwords to the archons or guardians in order to escape and enter into the highest degree of heaven. The parallels to the Temple Endowment should be clear. Gnosticism, as an esoteric tradition, also incorporated psychedelics and contained a lot of overlap with the Eleusinian mysteries discussed above. So this is another interesting um, place where, I mean, the church kind of got excited about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, 
in as much as it would lend some credence to their beliefs. But if you dig deep enough, it's really weird that you have this text that Joseph Smith would not have known about, um, this text uh, in the 1940s that was discovered where it talks about uh, James being told to give certain passwords to people at the Vale, essentially. Um, but when you read those, they actually make a lot more sense than the stuff in the temple. I never really got a lot of profound insights from the temple. Um, priesthood is another interesting parallel. So the principle of the priesthood, a power that allows one to heal through the laying on of hands, restored to the earth by a mystical experience with heavenly messengers, parallels the practice of Reiki, another method of healing through one's hands. This is especially true when you consider that it was acceptable for Mormon women to practice healing and blessings in the early church. Reiki involves using life force energy and was developed into a practice through Mikao Usui in 1922 when he had a mystical experience after 21 days of meditating and fasting. Reiki practitioners attune other practitioners who are often given a lineage back to Usui, uh, similar to lineages given with priesthood ordinations. Even the Mormon priesthood being named after Melchizedek invokes the esoteric and Gnostic importance placed on Melchizedek, who appears in Gnostic texts and is viewed as Hermes Trismegistus, both or even Christ, depending on the tradition. Um, another interesting parallel is, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Zionitic uh, brethren, um, but this was a group, uh, I guess you'd call them Rosicrucians, which are another um, esoteric tradition, but they were living four miles away from Peter Whitmer in the effort of cloister. They were kind of a subset of the cloister to my understanding. So in the 1700s, so before Joseph Smith was born, um, they were practicing baptism for the dead. They had built a, essentially a temple. They built a building they called Zion. They were ordaining each other after the order of Melchizedek because Melchizedek's some, a guy that shows up a lot in esoteric traditions because uh, it's kind of mysterious. Um, and they also had an initiation rite that I think lasted like 30 or 40 days where they were depriving themselves of things. And then they were drinking a psychedelic drink they called um, materia prima, and it was supposedly giving them convulsions and whatnot. Um, so very similar to the Eleusinian mysteries and very, very similar to what Joseph Smith did um, half a century or so later. And this is all four miles from Peter Whitmer. Um, then the idea of Kolob is an interesting one. So the concept of Kolob as the star closest to where God lives as included in the book of Abraham, parallels new age emphasis on the star system Sirius. This book was allegedly a translation of a record of Abraham in Egypt, but when the manuscript was discovered to be a standard copy of the book of the dead, church apologists shifted quite accurately, in, in my opinion, to a view that Joseph Smith essentially channeled the text. Granted, I think channeling um, doesn't mean it's true, um, with the manuscript merely a vehicle. Interestingly enough, there are several apologists who have linked Kolob with the Sirius star system, as this was one of the most important stars to the Egyptians, and KLB is the Hebrew word for the dog, uh, for dog, and Sirius known, is known as the dark dog star. Um, and I linked one example, even drawing connection with the fact that Sirius B, one of the two stars in this binary system, would not have been known to Joseph Smith, it's a dwarf star that apparently matches Doctrine and Covenants 136 through 7's description of angels uh, dwelling on a sea of glass and fire where all things for their glory are manifest past, present, and future, which interestingly enough is essentially a giant crystal ball. Um, so Sirius is viewed, so Sirius is viewed by many in the New Age beliefs, somewhat symbolically, but even symbolism versus literalism is nuanced when you believe in reality as consciousness. Um, as a star system with more advanced beings, 
many of whom have chosen to incarnate here to help Earth uh, go through this difficult period of transition before the dawning of a new age, all concepts that parallel Mormon theology and will be covered soon. So just this, um, you know, I started to get familiar with this uh, idea of star seeds and new age-ish philosophy, which if you search for Facebook groups, there, there's groups with hundreds of thousands of people that identify with this. And it's this idea of like having this kind of calling or this higher consciousness where you were, you came from another star system and you volunteered to go down here to help us go through this. Um, and as I started learning about this, I was like, oh, this is very similar to Abraham three and what prophets have been telling the youth over the pulpit for, you know, decades centuries now of like, oh, you chose to come down here. So there's a very interesting parallel there. Um, then I think the last thing that we'll wrap up on is psychedelics and early Mormonism. And this is another quote uh, from my piece. While the church focuses on the uplifting day of Pentecost-like manifestations of God during the Kirtland era, there are many stories that aren't shared. Some of these, these make it quite apparent that these experiences involved altered states of consciousness, likely exogenously induced which also play a significant role in new age culture. The psychedelic history of Mormonism, magic and drugs contains accounts of Samuel Smith incapacitated and vomiting behind the pulpit in the Kirtland temple. Church leaders disturbed by, disturbed by odd behavior by some attending members lying on the ground in a drunken stupor and accounts of non-members who crashed meetings commenting on the strength of the sacramental wine, which the doctrine and covenants required to be of their own make. There's also an account of Sidney Rigdon being pale as a ghost after a vision with Joseph Smith, a condition that sounds like the side effect of an exogenously induced altered state. Despite many accounts of his predilection towards drinking, Joseph Smith wrote, quote, I spoke at great length on the use of liquors and showed that it was unnecessary and that roots and herbs can be found to affect all necessary purposes, end quotes. Giving support for these spiritual experiences to be experienced in altered states Martin Harris would later describe his experience as one of the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon by saying, quote, while praying, I passed into a state of entrancement. And in that state, I saw the angel on the plates, end quote. John Whitmer and another of the three witnesses described Kirtland experiences in a way that strongly sounds like exogenously induced altered states by stating, quote, the disciples had increased in number about 300, but the enemy of all righteousness had got hold of some of those who professed to be his followers because they had not sufficient knowledge to detect him in all of his devices. He took a notion to bind the minds of some of the weaker ones and made them think that an angel of God appeared to them and showed them the writings on the outside cover of the Bible and on parchment, which threw, flew through the air and on the back of their hands and many such foolish and vain things. Others lost their strength and slid on the floor and such like maneuvers, which proved greatly to the injury of the cause. I think some people were pretending to have the sword of Laban and wielding it around. So Again, if you're familiar with altered states of consciousness, especially through psychedelics, uh, you can you can see the connections here. Um, and it's just convenient that the good experiences they claim from God and the bad, you know, they'll just say we're Satan. So there's a bunch of other connections, uh, you know, polygamy, polyamory, accounts of the church, uh, early church leaders teaching pantheism or the idea that the earth has a spirit and um, animals have spirits second comforter is also very much like a mystical state seeing christ and i think that explains denver snuffers stuff yeah. um so it's a lot of connections there i don't think people yeah yeah i don't think people have to inevitably this kind of a conversation is this what we're doing here at the end it would be easy for people who want to believe in a specific system to go like oh look you said my system has all these similarities with other ideas that have uh, come into the ether right and 
the reality is that I think what you're saying is that human beings or systems of human beings tend to have common themes. And if they're left long enough to think through spiritual ideas or concepts, they will inevitably come up with ideas or concepts that have been done before a thousand times. And, um, and that we collectively think similar patterns and ideas and concepts uh, simply by the nature of being a human being. Yeah, and that that science is has researched and has really getting a grasp on the fact that there is a profoundly impactful mystical experience that is accessible through many different tapping ways into. Yeah. and draws you know and the others these connections that connect religion and spirituality and science now, um, and this has been going on since before we had language too. And so let's explore consciousness and figure out what the significance of that is. And I think you can come together with a pretty convincing meta narrative that again, isn't big T truth, but it, it explains all these phenomenon and, uh, and it's much healthier than, and so this false dichotomy that, you know, Jeffrey R. Holland and Bruce McConkey and Gordon Hinckley, um, and even some of the, Ex-Mormons say that it's either true or false, um, God or Satan, God or a fraud. I mean, it just doesn't, it's not true that there is that dichotomy. Right. That in our collective consciousness, there are concepts and ideas and that anyone spending time in some sort of meditative or curious state, inquisitive state, um, has the possibility of coming across these same concepts. Yeah. Yeah. Totally love it, man. Great conversation again. Uh, we'll get this posted and um, I'll send you the audio as well. Gabe, thanks so much. Like what a great uh, time to spend two hours this time. I think we did two before. And so we've got four hours of kind of going through all this stuff and man, some of this stuff is just most of it, if I'm honest, is just really deeply interesting to me. And I'm, it'll be fun over the next decade or two because we've come a long way in 20 years and we, we understand that, progress and awareness of how things work exponentially grows. In other words, the things we were inventing or building upon the progress we made over the last two decades was faster than the two before that and the two before that. Mm -hmm. And hence the next two should fall into that same pattern. And it'll be interesting to see kind of the, the discoveries we make uh, in these fields and what we learn about reality as it might really be. Yeah, I think AI is going to make it uh, much quicker. I mean, I think the year, a year or two down the road, like yeah. we just can't predict where we'll be even then. Um, and totally. it's by the way, everything's coming together. Yeah, by the way, they said the uh, IQ right now of chat GPT 5.1 or whatever they're on is around 155. So when you talk to chat GPT, it is as if you're talking to a human being who has unlimited amount of access to information and has the IQ of a, of a person at 155. And hence we can imagine a moment not too far away from now uh, where artificial intelligence will be able to look at the same information we are looking at and propose concepts or solutions that we couldn't have imagined or haven't yet. 
And I've, I've already used it in some of this type of things where I, like I have an idea. I was like, oh, this this really seems to line up. You know, early church teachings seem to line up with this idea of panentheism panentheism where like God is everything. And then so I was like, ChatGPT, like, can you find any scriptures and Mormon scriptures that seem to support this idea? And it instantly has this whole knowledge where I would have had to like read through the Doctrine and Covenants and the Book of Mormon again. Yeah. And it'll spit out a couple of these. So it's really, I mean, it'll be a tool that will just leapfrog us forward um, in the connections we're able to to make. Yeah, totally, totally. So hope folks you enjoy this. If uh, if this conversation was interesting, uh, which it certainly was to me, and I think to many of you on the first one, uh, would really love your comments in the comment section on the video. Also, don't forget to subscribe and like, do the same uh, with Gabe's work as well. And uh, Gabe, I, I would welcome some point if you get to some other thoughts in your head that you want to share, I'd love to do a third one. So Sure. Uh, but thanks okay. for your time. And, and, and I was just grateful to be part of a conversation with you, my friend. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Okay. Have an awesome day. Thanks. You too.